Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where you look at more recent movies that are either out in theaters, VOD, or streaming services. I kind of pick and choose what I watch. There hasn't been a lot lately, but I'm going to be picking up speed on that. So I encourage you to click subscribe on that by following the link at quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the third part of this three-part series, looking at films set somewhere in the solar system, either partially or fully outside of Earth. Last week, I looked at Outland, which was set on one of Jupiter's moons. Today, I'm going to go to one of Saturn's moons, the third moon of Saturn, specifically. Saturn three, of course, Titan, I guess, would be the third moon of Saturn, and which is why it's called Saturn three. Saturn three is an R-rated film. It does have strong violence, brief nudity, disturbing images, and drug use. The runtime... Well, it's like 87 minutes or 96 minutes or maybe longer than that, depending on what cut that you watch. But for the most part, the theatrical version was under 90 minutes. Kirk Douglas, Farrah Fawcett, and Harvey Keitel. Well, those are the really the main stars of this film. Everybody else is just a very tiny, tiny role. Stanley Donan is the director, and the screenplay credited to Martin Amos. Now, the seed for what became... Saturn 3. It came from John Barry. John Barry was a production designer known mostly for work on such films as Star Wars and Superman. Pretty big films for Barry. He had an idea in his mind for a film he would write himself, perhaps even direct, this offbeat futuristic love story that could be made, he thought, into a low-budget first film. His story involved a man who creates a robot as a helper and he uploads his thoughts and feelings from his mind into it to program it so that it could think for itself. Now, things get a bit strange and dangerous when the robot develops feelings for the creator's lover. Now, Barry was busy working in 1975 on this film called Lucky Lady, and that was directed and produced by Stanley Donen. Donen, of course, very popular as a director of famous musicals, Singing in the Rain, and a whole bunch more, and a lot of pretty good comedies as well, including Charade, one of my favorite films from the 1960s. Now, Barry, during this time, he showed a short story treatment to Donan's actress wife, Yvette Mimieu. He wanted to get her feedback on this romantic story. And Mimieu really enjoyed the story, and she showed it to her husband, who gave Barry some constructive criticism to keep developing the story if he wanted it to be accepted as a feature film. He should add more conflict, more peril to the film, so that way it would sustain a feature. Donan even went a step further. He agreed to help Barry out as a creative consultant as he went through this journey of getting his story into a film. He thought he would even produce the film if he developed that concept into something that he could sell. Now, Barry improved the story, and when Donan reread it, he thought it was much better, but he thought that he could still use a professional writer's polish. So Donan secured the services of this British novelist, Martin Amos. He was the author of these acclaimed books in the 1970s called The Rachel Papers, as well as a futuristic mystery that he wrote called Dead Babies. Amos took Barry's original script and he infused it with a lot of literary allusions. He borrowed such things as from the story of Adam and Eve and the biblical book of Genesis. He also made the robot much more of a tragic figure, more misunderstood, kind of like the monster in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Now, the attractive woman of the story, she would be living with an older man, and they would have a man that was a little bit more her age 
over to the house to design a helper robot for work and chores. Now, as with Barry's story, the robot also develops this infatuation that the younger man has for that woman, and that results in this kind of love quadrangle that threatens to turn perhaps deadly. In 1978, Donan worked on a movie called Movie Movie that was for entertainment industry mogul Lord Lou Grade, his ITC films. He gave Sir Grade a copy of the Amos revised script, which at that time had been bought by film producer Elliot Kastner as a potential project to shop around. Grade had never done science fiction as far as films go before. He did do Space 1999 for television. But Star Wars at that time, that was the hottest thing in Hollywood. And considering this was within the same genre as Star Wars, namely science fiction, and the origin of the story came from one of Star Wars production designers, he decided he should give this some serious consideration. So long as he could make it in England, he thought this could be a go. Now, while Luke Grade was on an airplane back to London, he found that there was another famous person on the same flight. Farrah Fawcett, of course, the hot actress of the time, appearing in Charlie's Angels, trying to make her way into Hollywood films. She was actually headed to London for a ceremony where, among other things, she was going to meet Queen Elizabeth II. Jay Bernstein, who happened to be Farrah's publicist at the time, he knew Sir Grade, and he made the introduction between Farrah and Grade. Although Grade did not own the property, at least not yet, he still gave Farrah Fawcett the script to read on this flight and asked if she would be interested in taking the female role. As she read the script, she confided in Bernstein that she felt that might not be the right fit. The role was pretty small. There were some good emotional parts to it, but it didn't seem like something that she would normally do. Now, he agreed with her, but at that time, Farrah's career was kind of in limbo. She felt that she was being blacklisted in Hollywood. There were roles that were going to go her way, and then for whatever reason. Now, this could be a fresh start in her film career, at the very least, and with a little work, just might be something that would work in her favor. So she expressed high interest in doing the film if they could close the deal before the plane landed. She did not want the project to slip away as so many other big films had done in the past couple of years. She asked for $750,000 and to be able to have the approval of the leading man. Grade agreed to the terms before the flight landed, and he secured the rights with Kastner, who joined in on an executive producer role, and he told Donan that he had Fawcett slotted for the female character, which he thought was a good idea. When things were solidified, Fawcett called her friend, actor Cary Grant. Grant had retired from acting, but he encouraged her to work with Donan. He had made four films with him, and he thought that would be a great opportunity for more exposure, with the steady hand guiding the project. Grade considered The Helper, which is what the script was called at that time, he considered it too small in scope. He had a hot actress like Fawcett. This could be a much bigger film than a one or two million dollar film that was written. So he ordered a rewrite to increase Farrah Fawcett's role while also greatly expanding the budget. Before it was all said and done, that budget would be about $10 million, a sizable cost increase from what John Barry had anticipated. Now for the male characters in the story, Grade suggested Sean Connery for the older man and Michael Caine for the younger, even though they pretty much were only four years apart. But both were, at that time, in self-imposed exile because of the UK's unfavorable tax laws, which is something I alluded to on the previous episode covering Outland. Farrah suggested Kirk Douglas. She had met Douglas on her trip to London, and she got along with him at the ceremony. Douglas did sign on because he wanted to work not only with Farrah, but also the script was really unlike anything he'd read before. This was the first time he was offered really a science fiction film, at least unless you count 1954's 20,000 Leagues 
Under the Sea. For the younger man, Harvey Keitel took that role. It wasn't something that he really wanted to do, but he was experiencing a dry spell in his career, and he was broke. He really needed the $90,000 that they offered him. Now, the plot of the completed film, and this did undergo a lot of rewrites, which I'll get into in just a moment, but in the completed film, it's set in the future. Earth is a polluted wasteland. People have resorted to drugs and promiscuity while they rely on off-world food sources, these production systems, on other moons, other planets for salvation. Research chemists here, Major Adam, played by Kirk Douglas, and his young assistant-slash-lover, Alex, played by Farrah Fawcett, as well as their dog, Sally, they're the sole residents of this subterranean experimental food research station on Saturn's third moon, Titan. Unable to maintain their quota for the last three years, Earth decides to dispatch another scientist to help them meet Earth's food needs. And that scientist happens to be this mentally unstable opportunist named Captain Benson, played by Harvey Keitel. Benson is a flunky from astronaut school who usurped the actual scientist position after killing him before he was dispatched, a man named Captain James. He assumes his identity. Now, once he gets to Saturn 3, it's about to go into this 22-day blackout period during the eclipse where they have no communication outside. While he's there, Captain Benson puts together the first of a new line of robot from the Demigod series, he says, a helper robot named Hector. Now, Hector's memory utilizes unprogrammed human brain tissue, and he receives his programming via this connection through this electric probe that's in the back of Benson's head. Ultimately, Hector also assumes a lot of the same personality traits of Benson and Outlook. But Benson happens to be, of course, a flawed and murderous and lustful individual who secretly desires to take over the lab and to use Alex for his sexual pleasure. Hector has no compulsion to keep it a secret, though. He proceeds to terrorize all three of the humans in his quest for dominance of the laboratory. Now, on the production side, Saturn 3, it had originally been planned to shoot its exteriors, on location on the volcanic locale of Lanzarote, that's in the Canary Islands. However, this proved too difficult logistically, so instead, production designer Stuart Craig, who happened to be Barry's assistant when they worked on Superman, he really had a blank slate to come up with an environment that could be made at Shepperton Studios in Surrey, England. Craig's ideas were so expansive, though, that they took up several sound stages at that studio, and two of them were joined together to create the Titan Lab environment. So really a massive set. It took a team of 79 construction workers and craftspeople 10 weeks to complete using several tons of various material. Another six weeks went to creating the lava tunnels and the polystyrene caves. It was so massive and maze-like that some of the crew got lost on occasion. They had to look at blueprints to try to figure out their way out. Altogether, the set work took up to eight months of pre-production time, so a massive undertaking here. The production, once it was finally underway, it quickly ran behind schedule, and that was primarily due to issues with Hector's functionality. During this time, Kirk Douglas complained to Stanley Donan, the producer, that Barry was spending way too much time with the robot at the expense of everything else. Things were falling apart. So Donan, he decided to give it a look. He began showing up on the set. He tried to offer Barry moral support. But he quickly realized that John Barry was well over his head in how to handle this production. Barry was a talented production designer, but he really had little to no experience on a movie set calling shots, and he didn't know how to stage a proper scene. He couldn't handle these actors, especially Kirk Douglas, who turned on him. 
Kirk Douglas started trying to direct the film himself, Donan started questioning Barry in front of everybody else as to his decisions, and he argued with him constantly, and Barry thought Donan was making a lot of counterproductive demands. After experiencing this, Barry refused to work anymore under the constant challenge of Donan, and he walked away from his passion project, leaving Donan hanging as to what to do with this very expensive project. Donan, of course, he was known much more for lavish musicals, his classy ensemble comedies. He knew he probably would have to take over, but he had misgivings because this was a science fiction film with a tiny cast. He had never done a science fiction film, and he is used to having a much bigger ensemble, but he felt responsible to see the film to its completion. Kirk Douglas did fill in as director for the first couple of days after Barry's departure while Donan got up to speed. Meanwhile, Barry, who was... Pretty depressed and despondent about losing this project, quickly got a gig working on The Empire Strikes Back for George Lucas. He started off there as a design consultant, and then he became second unit director, mostly for the Hoth scenes. However, things got even worse for John Barry, unfortunately. A couple of weeks into his gig on The Empire Strikes Back, he started complaining of a headache and then became feverish, and then suddenly he collapsed while he was in a colleague's office. He was immediately rushed to the hospital, but by 2 a.m., He had died. He had infectious meningitis that took his life at the young age of 43. Now, as far as the actors go within this film, Farrah Fawcett, she was getting skewered pretty much every day, constantly by the media in her attempt to jump from television into movies. Her attempts after doing a supporting appearance in Logan's Run, the movies Somebody Killed Her Husband, as well as Sunburn, those were big flops, and that put a lot of pressure into making Saturn 3 basically a make-or-break situation for her career at that point, especially since she had received top billing. Both her professional and personal life were constantly under media scrutiny, and that resulted in a lot of negative press during this period. And to make matters worse, Fawcett was also unnerved in her personal life. She was being followed by these private detectives, presumably hired from her husband, Lee Majors. Their marriage was not doing very well, and there were rumors spreading all over the papers that Farrell was having an affair with her co-star, Kirk Douglas. All of that, of course, was speculative because Lee Majors even flew to London to try to surprise them in the act, but he found that Farrell was in her hotel room alone, and Kirk Douglas, he was with his wife of 25 years in a hotel room like 10 miles away. Farrah at this point was tired of Major's shenanigans, and she just wanted out of the marriage. In fact, by July of 1979, during the production, they separated. They would eventually divorce in 1982. She dropped back to her maiden name. She was no longer Farrah Fawcett Major's. She claimed publicly, though, that the non-hyphenated name really helped with European audiences, and that's why she dropped it. She was also associated with, at that time, dating a slew of eligible bachelors, Vince Van Patten, Ryan O'Neill, even Houston Oilers quarterback at the time, Dan Pastorini, was attached as a love interest potentially for Farrah Fawcett. The gossip columns just love writing all kinds of stories about her personal life, whether true or not. And one thing they also like talking about, there was a lot of publicity that was given because Farrah Fawcett shows herself topless, at least for a brief moment, in Saturn 3. Kirk Douglas also bears his bottom in this film. Maybe that's not as appealing to a lot of people, but he insisted on showing his physique As much as possible, he was in his 60s, and he really wanted to show everybody what a great body he had. Douglas wanted to be nude as much as possible, while Farrah Fawcett, though, did not want to be nude at all, except that upset Douglas. He thought that she was only a television actress. She was in no position to make demands. With Donan's help, Douglas managed to cajole her into accepting just a brief flash of skin for Saturn 3. 
Now, Farrell was actually very generous to Donan and Douglas, despite her experience here. She said that working with Stanley Donan, as well as Kirk Douglas, made her a better and more dedicated actress. She didn't really feel like she shared a lot of good chemistry, at least not on the screen with Kirk Douglas or even Harvey Keitel, but she did learn a lot of good things about how to apply herself to her acting. She does fit the bill here in terms of being alluring to these male characters, and she does exhibit a modicum of fright at the situation. This is actually one of her better performances. Farrah found that her ability really ranged from either being a flirtatious innocent or an innocent victim, something that she would manage to utilize much better to her advantage later when she achieved critically acclaimed performances in television films like The Burning Bed and Extremities. As for Harvey Keitel, well, he actually was not happy throughout the entire production of Saturn 3. There were a lot of script changes that were not to his liking. A lot of those script changes came partially because of budget reductions that were done by Lord Luke Grade. He was shifting money from Saturn 3 to try to make Raise the Titanic at the time. Keitel did not like especially that Donan did not give him enough character motivations or allow him to experiment with his role. He became very frustrated and angry as an actor. Now, Donan was not very enamored of Keitel either. He thought he was miscast horribly for this film. He thought that Benson should be from high birth, but Keitel just seemed like a guy from the streets. When Keitel would come to him for requests for input before each scene, Donan made a lot of disparaging comments to him. He lost his temper on Keitel on occasion, and he forced him to do multiple takes without even explaining why. Donan told others behind his back about his dissatisfaction with Keitel, and that got back to Keitel, and that made matters even worse. Keitel hated this movie. He hated everybody involved in making it. He could not wait to get out. And depending on what source you believe... Keitel either refused to return to do post-sync work, to do his voice work, his ADR work, after the film completed, or Stanley Donan decided that he could not stand Keitel's Brooklyn-inflected accent. Either way, British actor Roy Dotrice overdubbed Keitel's voice for the completed film. So when you watch the film, it is not Keitel's voice at all, which is very obvious for anybody who's followed Keitel's career. Now, Martin Amos, whose name is attached as the sole screenwriter of Saturn Three. He claims that the script that they used wasn't even his. They hired a slew of script doctors, most notably Frederick Raphael, to make a lot of major changes throughout the production. In fact, Amos would talk about his experience with Saturn III as one of the bases for his 1984 novel that skewered the movie industry. That novel was called Money, and the novel is drawn from his experiences, especially dealing with Kirk Douglas, who Amos claimed was always trying to show off his physique. He was doing constant push-ups, and he was boasting of his sexual prowess. Meanwhile, Amos claimed that Keitel, he was similarly macho, but he was less of a showboat about it than Douglas. Amos says that Fawcett, she was obviously very beautiful to look at, but she seemed much more disconnected. She was not really in tune with what was happening around her. After Barry's departure from the film, Amos was paid a thousand pounds a week, British money, for continued work on the script, but Amos's suggestions went mostly ignored in favor of a lot of ad hoc changes by other writers or even the actors. So he was getting paid, but not really doing much. The Steve Gallagher novelization of Saturn 3, it's based on an early Martin Amos script, and it reveals a lot of things that had been changed or removed from the final film. So if you want much more of what Amos's intention was with this story, you should probably read the novelization, because in the book, Alex's discovery of the dead dog, Sally, includes Hector holding up parts of the dog's body to offer to Alex, which is pretty gruesome. The aforementioned excised scene involving the dismantling of Benson is also in the book. 
We do see Benson dismantling Hector when it becomes obvious that Hector is a threat. And there's a scene later after Hector puts himself back together where he basically is doing the same to Benson's body, very gruesomely. The ending is also very different from what you see in the film. It suggests that Adam, instead of dying at the end of the film, becomes one with the electronics on Titan, and he starts sending messages to the survey team to come back and rescue Alex, who's alone in the lab by that point. The epilogue on Earth is also written in a different fashion from what we see in the film. And interestingly, none of the sequences involving the drugs, kind of like Ecstasy, the Blue Dreamers, none of those are in the book, but they're definitely very prominent in the movie. That suggests that it was a late addition to the story from another writer. Now, we see a lot of interesting effects work in this film, including like the spaceship going through the rings of Saturn, using a lot of layers of floating rocks above and below. It's not necessarily very convincing by today's standards. They feel very primitive in the post-Star Wars world that was really a far cry from the kind of spectacle that was released a few months later with The Empire Strikes Back, of course. There were shots of ships in space that show obvious matte lines, the effects involving models or miniatures. They look very artificial. Shots involving Saturn, they really look like an artist rendering of the planet instead of the real thing. And still, the set design is very remarkable in this film. It's still a major asset. The robot effects as well are very well developed. When they're in the interiors, everything looks pretty good. Although Colin Chilvers, the designer, and his team had a lot of issues with that robot the entire way. It took two years to perfect what was needed to be done on the screen with Hector, and it's estimated that a million dollars of materials and work hours and all of that went to Hector's design and his implementation. I think the most striking visual effect of this film is that production design, including a $2 million massive set spearheaded by production designer Stuart Craig. The, the robot, designed by Craig as well as built by Colin Chilvers, is kind of clunky, I guess, if you watch it from today's standards. But that robot is still menacing. It manages to supply the requisite menace required for a horror film. Chilvers did borrow a lot of elements from Leonardo da Vinci's anatomy sketches for inspiration on what to do with the design of his body. The most interesting thing about Hector is he has a very large body and a very, very small head. Now, that small head was not the original head, but they had a lot of difficulties with the other head being put in place. It was too heavy, too bulky, so they decided to try another head, a much smaller head, one that they could manipulate more because they wanted to add much more personality to Hector, and that required a lot of movement because Hector doesn't speak and this new smaller head was designed to have much more flexibility and control, although it is kind of a strange look to the robot in the end. Now, when it came to distributing the film, Lord Lou Grade had a newly formed company called AFD, Associated Film Distribution, and they started conducting surveys sent out to young people in October of 1979. They started asking this younger demographic if they wanted to see a film that was starring Farrah Fawcett, Kirk Douglas, and Harvey Keitel. But they received lackluster results, so they decided to do something different with Saturn 3. They would market the film not on its stars, but to market it much more like a horror film in space, much more like Alien, which didn't have a lot of stars to it. Star Wars, of course, was at that time the number one box office film of all time by that point, and that didn't have a lot of stars. They sold their concepts instead of its stars, so they decided to re-edit the film. They wanted to remove some of the pacing issues involved and make it much more terrifying. So they removed a lot of the romantic elements within the story, and they removed a lot of the sympathetic portrayal of Hector that was put in here. He was much more like a Frankenstein monster in his concept. We were supposed to sympathize with it, but they removed all of that to make him much more menacing because they wanted to capitalize on the slasher horror wave that was very popular with younger viewers and to ride the success of Alien. 
So 17 minutes of Saturn 3 were gutted by AFD shortly before they put the film into theaters. One scene that was cut from the film involves a dream sequence that was accompanied to some Elmer Bernstein composed disco music. He was the composer of the film. Alex Farrah Fawcett is in this very sexy black PVC outfit. The picture of her in that outfit is on some of the original posters for this film, even though it doesn't feature in the theatrical cut. There was also another drug-induced dream sequence where Alex and Adam murder Benson. And there was also that aforementioned scene where Hector dismembers Benson's body while mimicking his voice and repeating his words identical to that earlier scene where Hector is disassembled. There was also a scene cut out where Adam goes outside of the lab with Hector to the outside environs in the space buggy to do some daily chores, collecting rocks and such. But when you watch the final film, it's really Adam out there alone. The network television premiere, though, did restore about 10 minutes of some of that excised footage, but they did cut out a lot of the graphic scenes of violence and the nudity, of course, for a television showing. Now, I did mention Elmer Bernstein was the composer, but the score is mostly not in this film. The score is much more experimental for Elmer Bernstein at this point, but Stanley Donut did not like the eerie and rock-tinged introductory theme music that Bernstein had composed because he felt that it set a very spoofy tone to the movie that it really didn't work with the much more darker new cut of this film. So the opening of the film where they display the titles of the film It's in complete silence instead, so when you're watching this film, you think maybe something's on mute, but they actually have no theme music whatsoever, which is kind of a rarity. Donan also removed a lot of other music that he did, the Love Suite especially, dubbed Alex's theme, because he felt that it softened the sinister momentum of the new cut of the film. Bernstein would repurpose that piece of music, by the way, for Tarna's theme the following year. If you watch Heavy Metal, the one that came out in 1981, the animated feature, he recycles some of the work that didn't make it into Saturn 3. His score did not get released at that time until many years later on CD, and it contains a lot of the music intended but not used in the final film, if you're interested. Now, Lord Lou Grade, he made a profit through pre-sales to NBC for the television rights, but he still considered Saturn 3 a disappointment artistically. He said that the film that he had bought originally and the finished film were two entirely different things and blamed a lot of factors, the inexperienced director and John Barry initially, the clash of egos among the stars as well as the directors, and a lot of the changes in the script where things started going astray and they weren't able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, so to speak. And reportedly, Lou Grade was really uncomfortable with the disturbing violence in the film. A lot of those gorier scenes, even though they're much more intense for the audience, he wanted them toned down, trimmed out, cut for the film, even though audiences at that point were really watching a lot of gory massacre movies in the theaters. Now, Saturn 3 still plays like a combination if you watch it today. It's like Alien in terms of having futuristic terror, even though the story was conceived prior to that film's release. There definitely is still an alien influence in the way that they cut the film together to make it much more terrifying. But there's also a lot of borrowing from 2001 A Space Odyssey, especially the artificial intelligence gone amok, like HAL from 2001. The set design will remind some of the eerie off-world setting of Forbidden Planet. And if you saw Demon Seed, it came out in 1977. There's an artificial intelligence that seeks relations with a human woman that was a plot that was very familiar if you're into your horror films, especially of the 1970s. Now, science fiction fans had also just seen a madman with a killer robot just the year before in 1979's Disney film, The Black Hole, which, by the way, features Yvette Mimieux, 
the wife of Stanley Donan. And the ending of this film is telegraphed early on, so it's not a big surprise. You see a scene in which Adam beats Hector in a chess match, and he claims that he won because the robot does not know the value of sacrifice. So we anticipate there's going to be a sacrifice by Adam at the end of this film. So upon release in 1980, Saturn III did meet with utter disdain from film critics. And it did fall short of making its money back. It earned $9 million off of that $10 million budget, but it did earn like a lot of films like this because it is an oddity. So if you have low expectations, you might even come away enjoying a lot of the offbeat nature of this film. Some people appreciate its dark thrills mixed with that very weird story. And some of the campier elements are entertaining to some people too. However, at the time of its release, it was considered one of the worst movies for 1980. In fact, it received... Further derision, it received three nominations in the inaugural year of the Golden Raspberries. The Razzies, which I've talked about quite a bit on this show for some of the worst films. It received recognition for Worst Picture, Kirk Douglas for Worst Actor, and Farrah Fawcett for Worst Actress. They were nominated, but they didn't win. But Roger Ebert also gave it one star. He placed it in his book that featured his most vicious pans of films. I hated, hated, hated this movie. And that pretty much summed up what a lot of people said about this movie at the time. But I think if you watch it today, I would not consider it one of the worst films of 1980. There is a lot here that is still impressive. Most of that is set design, but it's also such a bizarre story. It's kind of fascinating on another level, even though with an objective eye, this is actually a pretty bad film. But it has a lot of really intriguing elements And I wish we could have seen John Barry's original vision come to life because reportedly, if you listen to what Lou Grade said, as well as Farrah Fawcett, the original script, The Helper, was actually something that might have been a nice little gem, but it got butchered quite badly all along the way. So the most I can give Saturn 3 is two stars out of four. Two stars means it's lacking something vital that would keep me from recommending it to most people. And what it's really missing here is a vision of what they actually were trying to make. There were so many different directions they were trying to go, and all of them seemed to be getting worse and worse. There was nobody on board that knew how to do a science fiction film or even a horror film. You know, Donan and Grade and all of these other people, this was their first time in the genre. They tried to mimic other films, but they just didn't have the vision of those creators. And all we get here is a mishmash of other ideas we've seen done in other films, but done a lot better. And so it never coalesces into something that lives up to the promise of its premise. So two stars out of four is the best I can give Saturn 3. Anyway, that's it for Saturn 3. If you have your own thoughts on Saturn 3 that you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Let me know what you think of this film. I always love talking about movies in general, but especially films of the 1980s. So if you want a conversation with me, find my contact information at quipster.net. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well, I'm actually not going to be doing a film from the 1980s, as I so often do. I like to go back to films that influenced movies of the 1980s. Sometimes I even talk about films that were influenced by films of the 1980s, too. I'm not very strict about the timeline here. But there is another film, and I mentioned it in the body of the review of Saturn 3, that fits in very nicely with the themes of this film. So I'm going to go back to 1977 for that horror film with some science fiction elements to it, too called Demon Seed that features Julie Christie in the starring role as a woman who is victimized by an artificial intelligence entity that wants her to have its baby. Very interesting film and disturbing in so many ways. Demon Seed from 1977 for next week's review. So check that out if you want to keep up with my reviews as I get to them. And until next week, thank you so much for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 